Hi there, I'm Jonathan Platt, and this is Direct Line, the best podcast in the Baylor family. Now, I've got a question for you. What do you do when a crisis strikes? More often than not, crises are terrifying, especially if you don't feel prepared to handle them. You might be wondering what will happen when the next crisis strikes. Will you be fired? Will you be harmed? Ultimately, will your family be safe? In this episode, I discuss how to craft a clear plan for success, eliminate stress in the face of crises, and help your colleagues feel just as prepared as you are with Dr. Mia Moody Ramirez. Dr. Mia is a professor and chair of the Baylor University Department of Journalism, Public Relations, and New Media. She joined Baylor in 2001 and has maintained an active research portfolio in addition to her teaching and leadership roles. Her research emphasizes media framing of people of color, women and political candidates, the pros and cons of social media and political campaigns, and she's examined how historical stereotypes are found in social media platforms. The author or co-author of four books, Dr. Moody Ramirez has also been widely published in a variety of academic and industry journals. Mia has been a mentor to me for years, all the way back to 2014, so I was especially excited to talk to her on this episode, and we went all over the place, and I loved it, because that's how Mia and I are when we talk. You really can't keep us on a single train of thought. So in this episode, you're going to hear how Baylor's journalism department has adapted teaching and academic life during the COVID-19 pandemic, how to best communicate key information to your audience or clients, why it's important to have multiple backup plans when facing uncertain times or crises, how Dr. Mia empowers her team and gives them tools to succeed, how to evaluate challenges using an RAC or race method, what research Dr. Mia has done on race, gender, and the media throughout her career, how critical race theory and the theory of moral self-licensing can help us better examine our experiences and the world, and what research projects involving race and the media Dr. Mia is currently working on. I'm so excited for you to hear this interview. Here it is with Dr. Mia Moody Ramirez. My name is Dr. Mia Moody Ramirez, and I am a professor and chair in the Baylor Department of Journalism, Public Relations, and New Media. This is my 19th year working at Baylor University, and I have to say it is the most different year after working here consistently for 19 years. Um, Everything changed for us uh, in March. In March, we all packed up, everyone in my office uh, packed up and began to work from home. Um, And that means teaching online classes, uh, taking care of administrative duties, and also working on research from home. Um, And many of us continue to do that into the fall semester, which we're in the fall semester now. Um, I'm actually one of the faculty members who has continued to work from home. Um, And so as the the chair of the department, this has been very different uh, for me. I am used to being in the office, of course, and that means I'm, I'm used to having people drop by my office if they have a question. I'm used to, um, previously I would be in the office usually from 9 to 5 each day or 8.30 to 5 each day. Um, and so it was nice because I would get to see all of my colleagues on a, a daily basis. Uh, I would get to work with our administrative 
associates, our office manager and our assistant administrative associate, I would get to see them every day. And if we needed to handle something, I could just go down, I could walk down the hallway and knock on someone's door um, and talk to them. Of course, this has all changed. Um, now, if there is something that we need to talk about, we usually do it via some type of either a Zoom or Teams meeting uh, where we're meeting in a virtual format. Uh, we haven't met in person since March. Wow, um, so that was, we was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we have not met in person since March. Uh, whenever we have to meet, we're still meeting virtually. And I would say that's true for um, most of the departments that are on campus. They're still meeting virtually. So yeah, that's basically how it has changed my job. It's just that I'm, I'm working from home. Uh, fortunately, I have a nice office space. Uh, it's nice and quiet in my office and I am able to get everything done. Um, and I teach my class in a synchronous manner, which means I actually get to see my students. Um, so I do like that part that I get to see their faces and I actually get to know them. Um, but I do know that some people are teaching in an asynchronous format. Um, and I know that can be a little more challenging, but you can still work through it and you can still actually get to know your students through the, the virtual office hours. Uh, but yeah, those are the primary ways uh, that my job has changed. That's kind of the new normal for me. Yeah. How many, uh, and you may not know an exact number, but if you were to say uh, of your colleagues in the journalism department, how many of them are teaching in person versus staying uh, online like you? Um, okay. So we have a total of 16 full-time faculty member. And I would say of that 16, probably seven of them are teaching in person. Wow. I know and that. the rest are teaching uh, online or either hybrid. Yeah. Which the hybrid is both in person and online. Yeah. I know um, Dr. Owens is doing in person for mm -hmm. his. Uh, 1303. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For his writing classes and for his politics and media class. Mm -hmm. uh, and I talked to uh, Professor Callaway uh, yes. maybe weeks ago, and he said he was still doing um, in-person with uh, yeah. a hybrid component to it. Yes. We think it's particularly important for those skill-based courses that they have some type of in-person component. Sure. So with Curtis, he's teaching students how to use a camera um, and the, the classes that have a writing component, like our 2303. Uh, we think those classes are very important um, to recruiting students and also retaining our students. So, um, and also they are, they tend to have more of our, um, our freshmen and sophomore students. And so those were some of the classes that we really focused on trying to make sure there was an in-person component to those classes. What about your family? Is Augie able to work from home and your two boys, are they doing online school? My two sons are doing online school, um, and they've actually been learning at home since March as well. Um, Augie, uh, my husband, he's still working in person. Okay. Um, for a while, they changed their format where they were working um, longer days, but they were only working three days a week. Uh, but they went back to their regular format now. Yeah. Um, and so now they're four days a week, and they're off on Fridays. Uh, Megan Davis, uh, who was a graduate student with me, and you mm -hmm. served as her thesis chair. Yes, uh -huh. I remember Megan. 
their um, their office is doing rotational days. So yeah. I think all of the managers are in there every day of the week, but mm-hmm. then um, employees one step down and beneath are coming in, I think, every other day. And then you rotate. If mm-hmm. you get three days this week, you get two days next week off. Yes. So I've heard of people doing that where they will have half of the uh, staff come in on certain days and the other half come in on other days so that you can still have social distancing. Yeah. And I think that that's very important in those offices uh, where you're not able to get your work done unless you're, you can meet in person. Uh, But for us, our department, um, the, our business manager is actually working from home still. Uh, Margaret Kramer. And I know you know her, uh, she's working from home. Um, and so a lot of the work that I need to do, um, I would end up doing in a virtual format with her anyway. Um, and so it has really worked well for me. I feel like I, I've been able to get even more done um, and working from home. I've always worked long hours, you know, even past five. Um, and so now I don't have to pack up and go home to continue working. Now I can just keep working. You know, whatever I'm working on, I don't feel like I have to drop it at a certain time and then go home. Uh, so for me, it, it has actually worked well. I'm, I'm able to get everything done uh, that I would normally do. Uh, I do miss seeing students in person. Uh, the students who would drop by for advisement or students who would come by just to say hi. I miss that part of it. Uh, but I still, I still make myself available. So I give students my personal cell phone number. Uh, if they want to talk to me, they're able to talk to me via, you know, telephone, or if they want to actually have more of a visual meeting, then we can meet via Zoom or use some other platform for that. And then, of course, I get a lot of emails and I, I stay, I stay, I keep up with my emails and I try to respond to those as quickly as possible. So you've you've got an advantage over a lot of people being in a leadership position, mm-hmm. getting ready for, while maybe not a pandemic, getting ready to do serious strategic communication um, is kind of in your blood. That's what you've studied for a long time. Uh, yes. So can you walk us through, you know, those six months ago decisions and how you were making those uh, when I, I talked to uh, Carly Thornton um, mm-hmm. a, a few maybe weeks or months ago, and we were talking about um, what it's like to uh, announce those decisions, mm-hmm. what it's like to um, roll those out to your team. Uh, I was wondering if you could take a step behind the curtain from that and talk about what it's like to come to those decisions as somebody that studied strategic communication um, and then all of a sudden somebody who had to do it. So for our department, it, as you said, it, it was something that we uh, felt prepared for. It was something like it was something that we felt like we had been preparing our, our whole careers for because that's something that we study. We study strategic communications. We study crisis management. And so this was a real life, a real life crisis that we were actually able to handle. Um, And so I applaud my colleagues in my department. They did a fantastic job of shifting gears, of going and teaching in a virtual format. Uh, We we met when it first happened um, in the spring 
We met every Friday uh, via Zoom, via conference call, uh, and we would talk about, you know, things that they were dealing with uh, in teaching in a virtual format, uh, any ideas they had for colleagues that might improve their online teaching skills. So we met every Friday, and I think that was very helpful uh, because people, we could actually see our colleagues. We were all dealing with COVID. We were all feeling like we were in a crisis mode, and we were trying to adjust to this new normal. Uh, but in meeting once a week and seeing our colleagues and seeing everybody, uh, seeing their faces uh, in, in the Brady Bunch format, that's what we all called it, you know, with the Zoom call, you can actually see everybody. That made it nice. Uh, and that made us feel more comfortable. It made us feel like we're in this together. Uh, and in, in being in it together, we can succeed because we have a close-knit department, you know, very collegial uh, we're like a family in, in the journalism, public relations, and new media department. Um, and so to us, it was it's, it was hard not to be in our, our suite, in our offices where we see each other every day. But in meeting on a daily basis, that made it a lot easier. Um, and in coming up with those, or a weekly? We met weekly, every okay. Friday. Um, and in coming up with the decisions, you asked about making decisions. Um, for me, I'm more of a collaborative type leader rather than a top-down leader, which means I like to talk to people and get ideas from people and, and then institute those ideas. So for me, um, one of the first things I did as the chair of the department was vacate all committees and then have people sign up for the committees that they were interested in. And I added a few new committees um, and so usually when I'm working on, you know, a decision or coming up, I'm trying to make a decision for the department. I don't do it in a bubble or do it by myself. I do it in coordination with other people in the department, people who may be more knowledgeable about that area than I am. Um, and so that was very helpful. Um, our office manager, Margaret Kramer, was very helpful, as you can imagine, um, so Margaret and I, we would talk on the telephone like maybe two or three times a week. Um, yeah, in, in the spring. And also with uh, Lanisa, the assistant administrat administrative associate, uh, we would talk on the phone with her a lot. Um, and then we have several committees, like we're having an alumni engagement committee. Uh, I met with the alumni engagement committee quite a bit because we were we had an effort in place where we were reconnecting with our alums, and we actually had several virtual reunions over the summer. So we we didn't miss a beat on that. Um, rather than meeting in person, uh, we were able to have a virtual use a virtual format for those meetings. So we continue that. You know, we didn't let COVID stop us from meeting that goal. Another thing that we worked on, and we did it all virtually was our online graduate program. So we actually worked on that throughout um, the spring semester and this summer, and we were able to move that through. Um, you know, we had a committee for that, uh, but Dr. Marlene Neal and myself, we were very instrumental in writing the actual proposal. And then we had committee members that gave us feedback on that proposal. And, and I primarily was the person who put together the, the final document the actual proposal that we submitted and it was approved this summer and we're launching that program uh, this spring, spring of 2021. 
That's so again, we were able to you know, get that done. So yeah. we've been able, and we've been working on an advisory board. We've been working on a friends of the department. Um, and we, so those are projects that we've still been able to push through. Although we're not meeting in person, we're still meeting um, via some type of platform and we're able to get the things done that we need to get done. So uh, two questions um, mm-hmm. from things you mentioned in there. If mm-hmm. I'm a journalism alum listening to this and I want to get connected to some of those alumni uh, connection meetings, how do I do that? Is there a place that I could go? Yes. If you go to our contact page on uh, Baylor Journalism, Baylor Journalism PR and New Media, um, and then go to the contact page, you will see there's a full list of photos and names of individuals uh, that are coordinating certain committees. So we have our alumni engagement chair, who is Bob Darden. He would be a good person to contact. And then we have our fundraising chair, who is Cassie Burleson. So Bob Darden, Cassie Burleson, Bruce Geetson. Bruce Geetson is our uh, director of student media. And then Marlene Neal is our graduate program director. And okay. then, of course, we have um, Margaret Kramer and Lenisa Tovar. Those are the individuals that uh, I work with throughout the summer on that particular initiative. And you mentioned Dr. Neal uh, in the graduate program. That was my second question. Okay. Uh, I actually had a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. say, this is a great time to go back to school. Yes. I, I would like to take advantage of going back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, the online journalism master's program is a fantastic thing. If I were someone interested in going back to school uh, and the online journalism program sounded great, where can I go to find out more information about that? Right now, the person that you would need to reach out to reach out and ask questions would be Marlene Neal. And her email address is Marlene underscore Neal at Baylor.edu. And you can find that information on our website. Uh, right now, we don't have a standalone website for for that online program, but we are meeting with uh, some individuals who are going to help us have a standalone website for the online graduate program. So that's actually in the works. Um, you can also go to our social media. We've posted information about it on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. So you can put in those keywords, Baylor Online Journalism Program, and you will be able to pull up some information. And of course, you can always email me as well uh, if you have questions. We'd love to have any of you who are considering going back to school. That's that's awesome. Having done the Journalism Master's Program, mm-hmm. um, I, I can only say how wonderful the program is and the option to be able to do it from anywhere in the entire world uh, would uh, just be fabulous. We have so many great alumni and so many great uh, uh, friends of the department who I think that that could really benefit. Um, Yes. So on our um, friends of the department list, we have, I I think, almost 70 70 people on that list. Uh, The advisory board, of course, is smaller. So our goal is to have about 15 people on that list. Um, And right now we are in the process of getting the contact information um, for everyone who's on that list. So we have uh, the list is in the development office. They're helping us get the contact information for each person. And we want to be able to send out those emails at the same time. So that's why we haven't 
sent out any emails yet because we're still trying to gather all of the contact information for those individuals. But we are looking forward to that. We're excited about connecting with our alums and about having an advisory board and a friends of the department. Uh, we will call on them to help advise us and give us advice in areas such as curriculum, like what should we do to update our curriculum in our department? Uh, what are some of the skills our students should have uh, when they graduate? Uh, what were some of the skills that you lacked as an alum that maybe you wish we had taught more or focused on more in our department? So those are some of the things that we will ask them and, and get feedback. And then, of course, we will, we will invite them in to be guest speakers, uh, we will invite them to campus for homecoming. Uh, we're planning to have, uh, planning to tailgate. Uh, we had hoped to do it this year, but we're not going to have a home homecoming tailgate this year. So we will have that next year. And then we'd love to invite them to come out and celebrate homecoming with us. So those are just some of the plans that are in the works. So going back to that, like strategic planning and crisis communication, um, this may be a good topic to keep talking about is sure. it, it sounds like the first place that you really go to naturally when you're trying to develop um, implementation of crisis management and strategic communication is collaboration. But after collaboration has to come that commitment to the plan. What, yes. what gears shift? What's the next thing to do once you've committed to that plan? Um, once you're committed to that plan, the next step is to think about how to communicate that information to your key publics. Uh, are you going to are you going to email everybody? Are you going to share it on your Facebook page, your social media? Are you going to call people? Um, so those are the things you have to talk about. How you're going to communicate it, that information. You also have to think about your target audiences, like who are your stakeholders. For us, the stakeholders are alums, our actual students, the parents of the students, and faculty, staff, uh, and of course, there are some other uh, just regular friends of our department. Um, and so when we decided that, you know, we needed to communicate something, we had to decide how we were going to do that. And in our, our communications tool bag, uh, every semester we send out a newsletter uh, and that newsletter is actually in a digital format. So we've continued to send out that newsletter each semester, and we will continue to do that. So that's one way for us to communicate with friends of the department, the alums, the parents, anyone that we want to get a message to. And they said the open rate on our, our e-newsletter is actually very good. So uh, the office that sends it out for us, they've been very pleased. Uh, another thing that we had to do is we had to communicate to our students. Uh, we know that our students were concerned because they went away for spring break and they thought they were coming back. So many of them didn't have their books. Uh, they didn't have their clothes. They left stuff in their apartments. So we had to communicate to our students. And what we ended up doing is we wrote, I think maybe two or three letters in total to our students, just giving them instructions and telling them, you know, this is going on right now. Uh, these are some of the things that we're doing as a department. Uh, we are praying for you guys. This is what you can do if you left your books at home. These are some online options for textbooks. So we crafted those letters. 
and we sh- I asked faculty to share the letters with students in the sections that they were teaching. Then we also shared the letters on our social media platforms, and we had our office manager email the letters to all of our majors. And we think that's an important way to do it because sometimes people are inundated uh, with emails from a department, so they may not check that email. They may not check an email if it's coming from the journalism department. However, if they get an email from their professor and it's a class that they're taking, then they might actually check it. Or if they're on our social media, if they're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and they see the letter, they may actually read the letter on our social media platforms. Yeah. Being an alum, uh, I know that my, like the, the group of friends that I graduated with who are still in contact, we always talk about the newsletter when we get it. Good. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that is immediately in multiple group chats uh, for us to, mm-hmm. to talk about. Um, I do remember when y'all were sending out those letters to students. Uh, yes. We had actually uh, covered and written a, um, uh, an article kind of reporting how you guys were responding to this because we had heard that y'all were one of the most like adept and uh, I want to say aggressive in a positive manner, yes. you know, very, very yes. aggressive in making sure everybody's communicated. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of moves us a step further into this from uh, you collaborate and then you commit and then you mm-hmm. communicate Mm-hmm. When you run into a challenge in this, mm-hmm. um, I know from just having friends who are your colleagues uh, and also knowing you personally, I know you're someone who always has not just a plan B, but a plan C. Um, yeah. So I guess let's take a peek behind the curtain and say, mm-hmm. how many backup plans does Mia Moody Ramirez really have? <laughs> and oh, wow. how, how important is it to have those? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm a firm believer in having a backup plan. As a matter of fact, as you said, people know that about me. One of my, my realtor, the person that was trying, at first we were thinking about selling our house. Uh, she even bought me a book that was titled that, you know, what is, what is plan B? Um, and so I do think it's important to have a backup plan um, and be ready for the unexpected. And that, and once again, as you said, that is part of crisis management uh, because things don't always work out the way we think they're going to work out. Um, and we have to make sure that that doesn't stop us in our tracks. We have to be able to keep on moving, keep moving forward. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that was one of the things that helped us as a department. Uh, we had a plan A, we had a plan B, and we had a plan C. Um, and fortunately, most of the time uh, in our department, we're able to succeed in everything that we take on. Uh, so we don't have to go to plan B, you know, very often. But if we need to, we have a plan, a backup plan just in case, because we, we believe that that's truly important. And that's something that we also teach our, our students. Uh, try to, when you're working on something, um, just know that it may not work out the way you think it's going to work out, uh, but you're going to learn from it regardless. Uh, and I even remember telling some students, you know, they think, well, I'm getting this master's degree, but I don't know how I'm going to use it. And I would tell them it's not going to be a waste of time. Even if you, you get a master's degree in journalism and you end up working as a CPA, you're still going to be able to use those skills that you 
gained while working on your degree in journalism. You're still going to have to write reports as an accountant. You're still going to have to stand up and speak to groups of people. You're still going to have to work with the team. So you're not going to waste your time. And so those are some of the things to think about. Everything that that happens, it happens for a reason. And so plan B or plan A may not work out, but whatever happens, uh, it's going to prepare you for that next phase or that next step. What are some of the questions that you ask yourself uh, and your colleagues and your team to help um, take plan A, see different possibilities out of it and come up with a plan B? Well, um, we, we, as I said before, we have committees. And so um, I usually try to let those committees meet and, um, and talk, you know, um, amongst themselves and then pull me in if I'm needed. Uh, but I think it's important to empower your committees, empower your leadership team, your leadership team um, members, and give them uh, the tools that they need to succeed. Uh, so that's also a part of it. And, and having those key people in place who are knowledgeable in certain areas. Um, and so when you're thinking about some of the committees that we have in our department, we have a curriculum committee. You know, they look at the trends in curriculum. They look at what we have in our department and what we might need to add or change. So the curriculum committee is important. We actually had to form an accreditation committee uh, because we were up for accreditation in 2020, but they actually pushed it back because of COVID-19. They pushed all of those visits back a year. Uh, so we do have an accreditation committee that's in place. We have the alumni engagement committee the um, fundraising committee, um, and then a, a couple of other committees. But those are our most important committees that we have. And they're always working on uh, things that we need to consider. Oh, we have a diversity committee, which is also very active in our department. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I just think it's good to have key people in place who know what they're doing and then empower them, uh, give them the leeway to come up with ideas, to brainstorm with their committee members, uh, and then to come back and share those ideas with the department. And then we talk about the, the ideas as a department, as a team. So as we've moved through talking about these pieces of crisis management, uh, we I want to talk about a piece that none of us are ready for right mm -hmm. now, and it's after everything. Uh, I think it's the piece that everybody wants to be ready for, but but none of us are ready to talk about it yet. And it's this end when you're moving um, out of all the change that's happening, all of the challenges you're going through, and actually moving into being a champion of this crisis. What and and you know, so we're not to the end of this one, um, but in the past, uh, what has that looked like? How have you successfully helped? bring about the closing up and the championing of this team's effort? Well, I think you can look to the race model when, you, um, when you're working on any type of campaign. So the last piece of any project would be to evaluate it, to evaluate what you've done, look at what you, what you did well, what you could have done better, and what you failed at. <laughs> um, so that's, that would be the last step. And, and we would, in dealing with COVID-19, we would look at that prior to transitioning back to an in-person 
in-person format. Uh, so possibly in January, we could look at, okay, you know, we've all been working from home. We've been, um, these are some of the things that we've been able to do well. These are some of the things that are lacking. So where do we go from here? So evaluation is always that last piece because in evaluating something, you can decide, you know, what you need to change, what you need to keep and what you need to improve. Sure. So a KISS analysis, the keep, improve, yeah. start and stop. Yes. Great. That's, that's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you mentioned at the beginning of your answer, you mentioned looking at the race framework. What did you mean by that? Uh, R-A-C-E. So the first part of that is research. So um, when you're getting ready to make a decision, you need to research, you need to look at the history, what's been done previously, uh, what are some of the sacred cows that you might need to get rid of. Uh, so that's the research uh, part of the, the race um, part. And then um, C is communication. Um, and then E is evaluation, but let me see what A is. I, I can't think of what A is. Do you know what A is? Can't think of it. I see that's there. You know, there are so many acronyms. There's KISS. Oh, action, action. Action. Okay. Yeah, race, you know, okay KISS, so, KISS yeah, stands for yeah. like four different things and race stands for like four different things. And there's so many other SWOT analysis and stuff like that. So I wanted to know yeah. what framework you were talking about. Yeah, so so that's the one. action. And then what was C? Communication, evaluation. Evaluation. Okay. Perfect. So and research that's the framework that I always use uh, when I taught um, my campaigns course. Okay. Uh, that's the one that we would use in, in that particular class. But I haven't taught that class in a while. Speaking of teaching, uh, you're teaching one course this semester, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you want to talk about that one? Sure. I'm teaching a gender, race, and media course. Um, I've taught this class for maybe seven years. Um, and now it's actually one of the more popular classes at Baylor. Um, I've had to add some extra seats to the class, uh, and we have students take it from different ma majors, not just the journalism department. I get a, quite a few students from um, gender and women's studies, um, and then some from political science and English. Uh, so it is one of the more popular courses on campus. Uh, students enjoy it because they're able to talk about current events, what's going on in the news now as it relates to race and gender. And as you know, there's a lot going on every day. Uh, and it's been that way probably since 2014, uh, where there hasn't been a shortage of race-related topics. Um, and then the other piece that they like about it is being able to write a research paper. Um, I let them choose a topic that they, they're interested in. And then they get to, well, the, the only catch is that it has to deal with race, um, gender, and the media. So it has to be some aspect of that topic. Um, and, and students love it. They love uh, the class. I've had several students uh, write research papers in that class and then go on to graduate school. I've had several of them present at the Undergraduate Research Scholars Day. Um, and so, yeah, the, the class is very productive. The students are very productive in that, that class. Uh, they also have to create a, a portfolio, which is basically a way for them to showcase their work um, from the gender, race, and media class. Um, and so I, I think that that's important. And they, and they also have to blog. Um, and so for many of them, they don't have a blog already set up. 
So this is the opportunity for them to go ahead and set up a blog. And maybe that's something that they will continue to do even after they graduate and move on to their real world jobs. And this isn't, this topic is not just a hobby for you. This is your, oh, no. <laughs> it's not a hobby for me. I, it's, it's my work, my life's work. Yeah. Um, I've been writing about gender, race and media um, since I was a graduate student. And I've been, I was a graduate student. I was in school for like 13 years. Well, and that includes my undergraduate degree, but a, a full 13 years that I was in college. Um, and, and I felt like most of the topics that I gravitate, gravitated towards, they dealt with some aspect of gender race in the media. And then the framework that I usually used was media framing, uh, stereotypes, uh, feminist theory, um, and then critical race theory. Those are some of the theories, the lenses that I use to look at different content. Do you want to talk about critical race theory? It's, I mean, it's one of my favorite. Having taken you for several classes, that was the one that I always saw you, like, light up the most to talk about. So critical race theory is the idea that everything that we do in society uh, has an element of race in it. So when people go out to cover the news, uh, there's always some, some aspect of race, even if they don't feel like there's an aspect of race. Like if they go out and cover a robbery and they report about it, and before people even see who, who was involved, they want to know, well, I wonder what color that person was. So race is always a part of the stories that we cover. Um, and then another aspect of critical race theory is the idea that we don't live in a colorblind society. So, and this became very popular after President Obama was elected in 2008. Many people said, oh, why do we still need to talk about race? Why do we need to have, um, why do we need to celebrate Black History Month in February? Uh, why do we need to have special programs for Black people? We have a president of the United States. So people felt like the fact that we had a president of the United States was black, we had arrived and we no longer needed to talk about race. Um, but as you know, it became an even bigger issue with President Obama being an African-American president. I actually wrote a book about his administration. I wrote several research papers. So race became even more critical when he was the president. You had people on Facebook groups, you had Facebook hate groups that characterized him in a stereotypical manner, you know, where they had him in photoshopped gold teeth, uh, drinking grape Kool-Aid and eating fried chicken, um, where they framed uh, Michelle Obama as being the angry black woman. Uh, they had images of her in a very stereotypical manner. They also framed her as being masculine. Um, and so the election of the first black president didn't mean anything. It did not mean that we were entering post-racial or a colorblind society. Mm-hmm. My, uh, one of my favorite theories uh, is moral self-licensing. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a body of work that actually like reaches kind of its peak right mm-hmm. after the election of Obama. Uh, there's a, a great study that really cemented it as like a firm social theory that we can depend on uh, to yeah. view as a lens. And it was mm-hmm. a study around 
people who claimed to have voted for Obama and how they reacted to racial, uh, in, racially insensitive statements. And the data shows, the research showed, that people who had voted for Barack Obama were more likely to agree with or in some way be ex uh, accept racially insensitive statements than people who had not mm. because they felt morally licensed mm -hmm. to say, well, I'm not a bad person. I voted for the first African-American president. I can't be a bad person because I did this one good thing. And that's, it's just one of the most interesting social theories that I've ever come across. Yeah, um, that is interesting. And I can imagine how that would work um, because I've actually seen that from a personal perspective of pe people on my Facebook page, you know, yeah. where they, they feel like, oh gosh, I'm one of the most liberal uh, individuals in the world. You know, I support black people, but then they turn right around and they, you know, they say stuff like, uh, well, Breonna Taylor got what she deserved. You know, she deserved to be shot or George Floyd. Look at his previous history. You know, they turn around and, and then they do the victim blaming. Yeah. And so that lets you know that they're not really supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement or, uh, or that they're not against systemic racism and police brutality. So the proof is in the pudding. We we heard that we always heard that growing up, and that's actually true. The proof is in the pudding. Speaking of Black Lives Matter, that's where you and I really formed our relationship. Was after I had gone to Ferguson and came back and was covering race for the Lariat. You were yeah. doing some incredibly interesting research during that point in time. Mm -hmm. um, what are you doing right now? Because this is another one of those pivotal moments um, in race in America. What is your research looking like? Uh, and on top of the fact that you're now in like the rest of us in a weird situation. Mm -hmm. uh, how's your research productivity? What are your topics that you're looking at right now? Well, fortunately, as the chair of the department, I still have um, uh, time, release time to do research. So I have 25% research, 25% teaching, and then 50% administrative duties. Wow. Um, and I am so thankful for the 25% for research because there is no way... I could just sit idly by <laughs> and not be writing. Um, so actually right now I'm working on like four or five different research projects where I'm collaborating with yes. different people. Yeah, I'm actually working on um, one about free speech, hate speech, and COVID-19. Okay. Um, and with that, we looked at the type of language that people used to describe um, COVID-19, like the China flu, Chinese virus, um, some of that uh, dog whistle type language. Yeah. So we're looking at the role of language. We're looking at misinformation and we're looking at when does free speech cross the line and become hate speech. Mm. Uh, so that's one project. Another project, we're actually looking at how the George Floyd protests were framed. Oh. And to do this, we're looking at memes. So we're looking at some of the themes that surfaced in the memes uh, that related to uh, George Floyd. And so that one kind of builds on another study that we wrote when I first met you uh, in 2014, where we wrote one about Michael Brown. Yeah. So we're kind of using that same framework, but we're applying it to the George Floyd, uh, George Floyd's death. So yeah. that's the second piece. Um, I'm also collaborating with some graduate students in my gender, race and media class uh, where we're looking at um, different platforms on Facebook and how they framed COVID-19 differently. 
So we're looking at Crooks and Liars, Breitbart, um, and Huffington Post. So we're looking at some of these that have very different viewpoints. Then we're going to compare and contrast some of the Mm -hmm. themes that surface on those platforms. And then the final article that I'm working on is where we're looking at waivers and we're looking at how COVID-19 was handled in California. Um, Many, in some of the school districts, they had parents sign waivers saying that if their son or daughter ended up sick or dying from COVID-19, they wouldn't be able to sue the school district. So we're looking at that. And we're also applying a crisis management lens to that particular study. And with the... With the first uh, female uh, person of color to be nominated as a vice presidential candidate, are you looking at doing any work on that with Kamala Harris? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Kamala Harris. I'm also collecting uh, Facebook posts about Kamala. Um, That one, I'm collecting the data. I have not started working on the project yet, but I do have a colleague who wants to collaborate with me on that project. Yeah. So definitely we're going to write something about that as well. That <laughs> Down sounds the like road. a lot more than 25%. Yeah. <laughs> it is definitely, it's probably more like 75%. And, yeah. and my total is probably 225% <laughs> to get everything done. Um, but yeah, there is so much to write about right now. And yeah. then I collaborate a lot with people. So I have people who email me and say, hey, this is going on. Uh, let's write about it. Um, and so I, you know, I have to turn and turn some things down. Like last year, my first year as chair, I turned everything down. Um, but after COVID-19 hit, I knew that I needed to, you know, start writing and, uh, working on some projects. So, yeah. So the, the myth of the easy academic summer, it it was especially not true this year. No, it's not true. The myth of the easy academic job period. I have friends who think, oh, you're a professor. That's a cush job. Professors don't have to do anything. And I'm thinking, um, that's not true. But it's actually stuff that we like to do. And, and I would write about these topics, even if I were not working for Baylor or, you know, if I were not a professor, I would still be writing. Maybe it would be a different format. It might be for a newspaper or a blog. Um, but I would still be writing about these topics. I just, I love uh, watching from sort of the outside. I love how much Baylor supports you in this because I can imagine plenty of institutions that don't want to be known for having the person that pokes the bear this often. Yes. Uh, and, And my friends even, when I first started writing, um, some of my colleagues at other universities, they would say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get Baylor to fire you? And I would say, no, Baylor's actually very supportive. They know that I'm writing. They know what I'm writing about. Um, and they've always been supportive. They've always paid for me to go to conferences. Um, and when Sarah Stone was the chair, I would tell her, you know, I would give her a heads up. I'm working on this <laughs> and, you know, keep her in the loop so yeah. she would know. Um, and now I just kind of keep Bob Darden and Margaret Kramer, keep them in the loop. So I don't go too far off. Um, I think the only time when, when, um, I was kind of hesitant and I got advice was when Baylor was going through the title nine, the whole Uh, title nine crisis. I had people ask, aren't you going to write about that? (laughs) I remember that. I talked to you about that. Yes. You remember. 
Yeah. yeah. So people kept, you know, when I would go to conferences, people would ask me or they would ask me about it on Facebook. They still ask me. Somebody asked me about that yesterday, about Title IX and Baylor and yada, yada, yada. Um, but it's one of those things that I have not felt led to talk about because it's it's not directly related to what I write about. Uh, it is it's related to gender, but as far as gender, race, and the media, um, you know, it's kind of removed. Um, and so I have not felt led to write about that. Um, but yeah, so Baylor has they've given me a license to write about pretty much anything. Um, and when I meet with the dean, which I frequently do, Dean Nort and Dean Kim Kellison, um, they're always very supportive. And I'm actually um, chairing a diversity committee or co-chairing, I'm co-chairing a diversity committee for uh, the depart department of, or the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm co-chairing that with Kim Kellison. Okay. And we're, um, we have about, I think, 10, 10 people on the committee, uh, yeah. but we're looking at the curriculum in general. We're looking at some things that we can do in arts and sciences as, star, as far as retention, uh, diversity in our curriculum, uh, those types of things. Yeah. So yeah, they've actually been very supportive. I, I would say they've not only been supportive, but they've helped give you a, a platform. I mean, for a while you were on, you were everywhere. Like, I, I oh, mean, yeah. you were on yeah. tons of calls with Dr. Livingstone and this Dean and that Zoom call and this marketing piece. And you were, you were everywhere. What was that like working, um, or at least being so present in the middle of that conversation uh, with uh, Dr. Livingstone? That was awesome. Um, yeah. She is wonderful to work oh, yeah. with because she's so down to earth. I just like to watch her and watch how she handles uh, crisis situations uh, because I feel like I can learn from her. Yeah. Uh, she's a good role model, and she has really done a lot for Baylor uh, in the few years that she's been the president of the university. I think she's doing a good job. Uh, Nancy Brickhouse, our provost, is doing a good job. Um, so this is good. It's good for me as a woman, see other women succeed. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, we have Dean Nort, who is our dean, but then we have an associate dean, Kim Kellison, who's sure. also a woman. And that, that's who I work with directly. So if I have an issue, if I have a question, I can pick up the phone and I can call Kim anytime. And she's there to help me navigate, which I did a lot of that my first year as chair. Um, I, if I had any type of issue, I would make sure I either call Dr. Stone, the former chair, or I would call um, Dr. Kellison. And they were both very, very helpful. Um, so that's important. That was a piece I maybe uh, didn't talk about, but the importance of having mentors or people that you trust that you can actually call and you know they're going to give you good information, uh, that they really care about you succeeding. Um, and I feel like I have that. Um, I have that. I have an excellent support system um, in people that I can look up to in administration. But then also my colleagues. I've known my colleagues for many, many years. I met Bob when I used to write for the Waco Tribune Herald when I was a cub reporter. Uh, so I've known Bob for, gosh, 28 plus years. Uh, Cassie Burleson is on our, our uh, she's still a faculty member. I met her when I was in graduate school. So I've known her 25 plus years. Kevin Tankersley and I used to work at the Waco Tribune Herald together. Um, and just, you know, it just goes on. The list goes on. Oh, and actually the person who wins 
is Brad Owens because Brad was my editor when I was in college at Texas A&M. So he actually, know that. I've known him the longest. I've known Brad the longest. I've known him for 30 plus years. He was actually my editor at the Bryan College Station Eagle. That's too cool. So it's just amazing how our, our paths are, have reconnected. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love my colleagues. I love our department. I love working for Baylor because Baylor has been so supportive. Um, I, I feel like I'm in a good place. I feel very blessed uh, to be in the position that I'm in. Um, I feel like I've grown up. I've actually grown up at Baylor because I actually have two degrees from Baylor. I have a master's degree in educational psychology and then a master's degree in journalism. So I have spent a large portion of my life affiliated with Baylor. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mia, I mean, like the chance to have you as one of my mentors was and is just an absolute fantastic pleasure. Um, well, thank I, you. I do remember you coming to my office. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're like the ideal mentee because you actually stop by um, and you actually have a hunger and thirst uh, for knowledge. I think that makes a difference. And I think it makes a difference that you connect with some of your mentors or mentees, and sometimes you don't connect. It depends on, I guess, maybe your research interest or if you have other things in common, um, because it's that, it's been that way for me before, where, where I will have a mentor, uh, where, you know, I, we may not necessarily connect, but then I have other mentors where we just really connect. Uh, like, actually, the person that I've written two books with, she was an assigned mentor through an organization, um, but we had so much in common, like we both have three children, we're both in the same sorority. Um, and so, and our, both of us have March birthdays. So we just really connected and we yeah. became fast friends. So, and I think that's the way it is. Anytime that you're assigned a, a mentor, uh, sometimes you're going to really connect. And sometimes, you know, maybe, you know, that person is just there in a professional way. Um, so, yeah, but I do think mentors are very important in a person's success. Well, this has been a true pleasure to talk with you. Um, not only am I personally so grateful for a relationship with you, uh, but the Baylor Line Foundation is just so privileged to have the relationship with the journalism department that we do. And to keep being able to go back to not only what I can call my home, but what other people on our staff call our home and what so many of our constituents and clients call their home. It's just truly, truly a pleasure. Dr. Mia, if anybody wanted to find you on social media or the web or say hey or whatever, how do they do that? You can find me at, at Mia Moody Ramirez. On That's Facebook, cool. Twitter, most Twitter, places? Twitter, Instagram, yes. Are you on TikTok? I'm not on TikTok, <laughs> although uh, Cassie Burleson has been encouraging me to get on TikTok. But I'm not a, <laughs> I actually, I've watched some of the videos, but I haven't created any yet. So maybe I'll do that down the road. <laughs> <laughs> you let me know. You, I, I will. I'll let you know. But thank you, John. And we're very proud of you. You're doing a great job in your your position as the, are you the editor? Is that your title? Editor-in-chief. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, editor-in-chief. Uh, and we're very proud of you. So keep up the good work. Um, and thank you for the invitation to appear on your podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Mia. That's my interview with Dr. Mia Moody Ramirez. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. 
if you're interested in the resources, the papers, any of the nerdy academic things that Dr. Mia and I talked about, or how to follow her, you can find lots of links in the show notes below. We're off next week for Thanksgiving, and we hope you have an especially safe and enjoyable uh, holiday season. And the next week, we'll be back with a brand new episode right here in this feed about what's next for the Baylor Line Foundation. We have got a lot of great things going on and some really, really tremendous things coming for the year of 2021. Uh, we're in the middle of strategic planning right now as I'm recording this, and it's like my favorite thing in the world to do. So I'm very excited about the December 1st episode. So make sure to follow us uh, wherever you listen to shows so that we're always appearing in your feed and you're one of the first to find out about those brand new things that Alan Holt, the Baylor Line Foundation Executive Vice President, and I will be talking about. Also, if you haven't reviewed our podcast yet, would you do that right now? You're our very best source for new listeners, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We're eager to hear from you, and I promise we do read every single review. If it's good, if it's bad, if it's indifferent, your reviews help us make this podcast better and remain your voice in the Baylor family. Our show is produced by the Baylor Line Foundation. Our audio producer is Michael Echterling, with production support by Courtney Faulkner. Research is by Rachel Cooper. Our director of marketing is Kaylee Davis, with additional support from Sophia Alejandro. Special thanks to Tony Peterson, Bob Darden, and Alan Holt. We'll see you in two weeks. I'm Jonathan Platt.